So, how's your practice? My my practice has been good. Um, just continuing as per usual. It's become more um, of like more of like a less of a formal practice, and just whenever I'm working, just uh, sati like remembering. Um, not even working, just doing anything, um, and it's been really positive. Um, I've, I've like always had a little like, or like something like a year ago, before even I was meditating seriously. Um, I don't know if seriously is the right word, but consistently, um, I had like something where. I um I had like a something where I don't know I was just like playing with like something and I could like inspire like positive sensations by like relaxing my leg or whatever it was um so I was playing with that a little bit or I have been um in terms of sati when I like remember that I'm like thinking unwholesome things um, and it's been fun kind of to see that grow a little bit. Um, and it, I've gotten, it ebbs and flows kind of like everything, but it, the ebb and flow is kind of on an upward trend where I'm able to, um, like get into a positive state quicker and more positive, um, and originally it was like positive sensations, and now I'm getting to more of a point where um, it's not just sensations, but I'm able to like step away from like what I'm doing a little more. Um, but that's been fun. And then, yeah. Okay. Well, first off, is. Uh congratulations are in order that you're beginning to practice correctly and uh, this is quite a milestone I know uh, and have heard of people who have been practicing meditation a la Western Buddhism for 50 years and still when they, they speak they speak with a mouthful and therefore a mindful of hindrances mm. Okay, so this is actually, I think, uh, possibly the major reason why Western Buddhism tends to fail. Mm -hmm. That it has great promise, but only a few seem to be able to get their mind into a state of what is called uh, a state of mind that's pure. The Kabuta Dasa would call it a void mind, and that... Um, the important point for a really good practitioner uh, uh, who's understanding what I mean uh, is going on is that this void mind is absolutely necessary for practice and it is one of the jhana factors mm -hmm. being free from the hindrances is in fact the very first item on the list and so, uh, 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 
many suttas point that out. In sutta number 111, which is the name of it is one by one as they occur, this is a favorite of the Mahasi group uh, because uh, they think that what the Mahasi method of noting is, is seen in this particular sutta. And yet, the first point about this sutta is, is about, uh, this is the Buddha addressing the monks, talking about Sariputta. And first off that the Buddha says about uh, Sariputta's wisdom, he has sharp wisdom, focused wisdom, expansive wisdom, laughing wisdom. I really like that laughing part, laughing wisdom. <laughs> yeah. And then he said, the Buddha said, that uh, uh, for a fortnight, just two weeks, uh, Sariputta practiced. And then he said, and this is how it's done. And then starting with it, okay? So, and this is how it's done is a markation for this is how it's done. And so we're going to talk about it. The next sentence is quite secluded from unwholesome states. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even that sutta, if you read it in detail, that's the first thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, secluded from unwholesome states, then one can enter and abide in the first jhana. That in fact, entering into the first jhana is actually what we mean by a jhana factor of applying the mind. And then entering and remaining in the first jhana is also the jhana factor of being able to sustain it. And what is it that we're sustaining is this mind that is free or void from unwholesome thoughts. Yeah. And it's like, duh! <laughs> I mean, this is the whole show right there. Yeah. Okay? That's it. That's all there is to it. And in a way, uh, the Buddha is pointing out with Sariputta is, is that it's a, uh, a fairly fast process. Mm-hmm. Number two is, is that we have to give the, the, uh, the point to the naysayers that, yes, Sariputta was, in fact, a mendicant already. He was already a recluse. He had already been going out. And that uh, from things that, that seem logical and other uh, small indications, he actually was following a path similar to the path when the, uh, that the Buddha practiced when he was still an unenlightened bodhisattva. Which means that, that Sariputta was, in fact, developing skills already. So, like, unintentionally, though, right? Maybe intentionally, or, because jhana practice... What do you was, mean by reclu- Oh, recluse meaning, like, jhana practice. Right. Regular okay, practice sure. in the yeah. sense because jhana was well known in the time of the Buddha... But what they did with it then is what Westerners try to do with it now, that the first jhana is a step to the second jhana. Mm -hmm. And the point that the Buddha made is, oh, no, wait a minute. Oh, no, let's not use the first jhana as a stepping stone to the next and to the next and to the next with possibly no end to it all. And... Let's figure out what's the right thing to do in this first jhana. And this is where the noting comes in. This is when we have the mind that's fit for work, 
that means that it's fit for noting. Now, there's a few things that we're not going to note. What would be the things that we're not going to note? We're not going to note unwholesome thoughts and states of mind. Why? Okay. Because we're maintaining being free from them. Yeah, that makes sense. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> That's an important point. That means that in a practice where students are practicing noting, and they are told to note whatever is there, then if there are an unwholesome thought there, that's to be noted also. Yeah, that's the analogy of like you're tied up in ropes by in a prisoner. You don't like ask the person you're held captive by what kind of ropes you're tied up in or what kind of knots they tied them in. You try to escape, right? Or you escape. Uh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that sounds like somebody uh, who told that story has read a sutta that I know. I think it's number 62. Uh, I'm not sure of the number. It's in the 60s, though. And the story is about uh, the, the, the guy was shot by an archer with an arrow. And here oh, yeah. he has the arrow. Yeah. I think you gave that example, and I was, um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this is the kind of noting that many Westerners do is, is that they, instead of noting the arrow just enough to say, there's an arrow in here, yeah. <laughs> let's get it out. Yeah. Okay. That that's the issue is, is that noting the arrow is enough to say, well, wait a minute, we got to take care of this. We got to mm -hmm. do something to pull this dude out. But what Western meditators will do is they will go into noting that uh, dukkha in their mind and go for, okay, who shot me? Whose fault is this? They go back into story time, right? Yeah. And this is what, where the Buddha is making that analogy that so many of us are missing in practice. And that is, is that we start telling ourselves stories about the problems of life and which means that we're just getting ground into it. But now we're doing it with a new ferocity, a new focus, a new determination that we all call noting. And now we've got this really powerful microscope. Yeah. And we go off and what are we noting now? Bunch of crap. Yeah. And we're getting really good at knowing crap. <laughs> we we right? are. But we never take that one step that the Buddha is talking about is let's get that arrow out. Mm -hmm. Let's remove those hindrances and become secluded from them. And that that's the number one uh, skill to be developed, but it has three minor skills associated with it. And the minor skills are actually parts of the Eightfold Noble Path which is one's right view. The, the view is to look, to see, to judge, to note, is this wholesome or not? Mm -hmm. Along with sati, to wake up and take a look. Along with the right effort, now that we've determined that this is a hindrance, we've got to actually take the effort to remove it. We've got to pull mm -hmm. that arrow out. Yeah. Sometimes the arrow coming out has the same force as it had going in. Ugh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But once we get skilled at that, 
of pulling arrows out and pulling them more out and more out and more of them out, the easier it is. Our technique improves. We understand what's going on. We're able to catch them quicker before they actually get in. And many times we're actually seeing those arrows coming and dodge yeah. them. Yeah. And then, and then dodging arrows is a whole lot easier than pulling uh, stuck arrows out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is how the practice begins to go. But we have to become skilled at removing unwholesome thoughts. But then with the right view, that means that we have to also develop the skill of figuring out what is what thoughts are unwholesome and which thoughts are not unwholesome. Yeah. And that's where I can give you some ideas, but you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Of what I feel is- like... Yeah, that's part of this week where it's been a lot nicer. Like we've we had a past conversation about work and such, and a, like an analogy would be like like maybe there's a bear in front of me or something, um, and like more like with your grab and stuff, like you're calling like that's dangerous in terms of like suffering and such, um, and like and my immediate response to that would was like um or like how i interacted with that originally was that um like i went to renounce and like disliking work and stuff but that's not a very skillful way to go about it um and like like it feels as if I got a little close to the bear where like now I have a flashlight in the spot. Like, like I can see his nose a little bit. Like I know it's a little more dangerous. So I <laughs> like, there's something like in myself that like, okay, this is right. Where like a lot of stuff I hear about, like, it seems like magical unless you can actually put your finger on it. So that's exactly right. That we're trying to take this out of the world of conceptualizations which is how we communicate as humans. We communicate through concepts, but we live through reality and, and feeling and sense awareness and uh, contact consciousness, okay? So this is then your own investigation, but one of the ways that we can think of it is is that uh, instead of getting a, a really good book, look at a really, really great big bear, all you really need to notice is that nose that you saw, and that's enough. Exactly, and then I can run <laughs> once I see his teeth. Yeah. You don't need to see the teeth of the claws. All you need to see is the uh, is the nose, just the tip of it. Yeah. And that should be enough. And not only that, but you would say that um, the way that you're describing it means uh, that things are revealed in detail over time that the longer you look at something uh the clearer you see it Mm. okay but there's another way of looking at this thing or another way of conceptualizing it is in the sense that um shati as a skill is to be developed in two ways one is uh how often it comes up and two, how quick is it? How fast does it occur? These are the qualities of it. So uh, when we're talking about that, we're talking about kind of like an instant recognition. An example of that 
is, is that uh, let us say that you walked in the kitchen and you put your hand uh, and leaned on the counter. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to realize that you didn't put your hand on the counter, you put it on the electric grill that was on? You probably even, I don't know quite how it works, I've never done that, but maybe even pull it back before you realize, right, if you're not, if you don't have sati. Exactly. That in fact, well, the sati is going to be the noting or the realization that the hand is actually in the process of moving back. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. The, the hand itself has mechanisms built into it from birth that even a very young tender infant that has no control over their hands, if they touch a hot rock, the hand itself will draw back immediately. And then two, three, four seconds later, the, uh, the, uh, the, the tears ball up and the scream comes. Yeah. It's funny, over the past, I don't know, two weeks or so, I've felt the same thing with, like, itches. Like, at, at first I'd realize, like, after I'd itched the itch. And then it got to a point where, like, my hand was on it and then I realized. And now I'm getting, like, in a middle where sometimes I'll realize it. And today while I was working, I would even start tearing up and, like, just be able to watch that. So that was kind uh. of fun. Yes, this is what we mean by getting quick at it, all yeah. right? Uh, and going back then to the analogy of being shot, now we're not being shot, we're being shot at. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a big part of it is dec- it decreasing the pain of, like, pulling the arrow out, right? right. Um, like, if you have to pull an arrow out every single time, it's a lot harder, um, so... So we begin to get good at seeing those arrows even before they, they reach their target. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is another way of saying uh, danger five seconds ahead or danger three seconds ahead. A really clear example is that for many people is they're working at their desk and they hear the footsteps of their boss behind them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they freak out right then instead of waking up right then. If they wake up right then, they'll be completely ready for the boss and everything will go beautiful. If they freak out right then, then naturally they'll be a freak when the boss talks to them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so again, we're talking about how quick can we get with this stuff so that we can begin to see it very quickly Mm -hmm. as it arises. All right. As we progress in our practice, we begin to also see that it begins to fade away. But in the beginning, we see it on arisal, and that um, it needs to be, um, let us say, taught or stated the way that we're talking here is, is that the arisal should be enough. Seeing it as it arises should be enough for us to see the danger and then plot the escape. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, that should be enough of it. Uh, however, as we practice more and more, when we see not the arisal of that hindrance, but after, as we're throwing it out, we can also see that escape, where we can see the deterioration and the falling away, the flittering away of those hindrances. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're not strong. They're quite weak. The sooner we catch them. In fact, the only time of hindrances that were strong ever were the hindrances that ground on and on and on and on without any waking up at all. Yeah, it's only when you leave the arrow and you're examining it and you're bleeding out, right? Uh Uh-huh, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 
So that that's when the arrow is really hard for us is because mm -hmm. we leave it in there and let it just grind on one by moment after another, after another, after another. So this is why we want to wake up to the sati to recognize, wait a minute, this is painful. Yeah. Wait a minute, this is, this is, this is, I, I, I've done it before, I've been there, but there's no reason for me to uh, do it again. And we can do that with, like, putting the hand on the stove. Immediately we would withdraw with that. Why is it that we allow the mind to fill up with and continue having the mind's hand right in that fire? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how we can do that, but humans do it. I know I was pretty good at it. I was quite yeah. Not only did I make a lot of fire for old good old <laughs> you're truly, but I can make a whole lot of fire for a whole lot of people. <laughs> Get that yeah. hand just the right temperature. Yeah. Right, right. So Anything over brilliant. a thousand centigrade will be fine. <laughs> Even metals melt up there. So yeah. um, we have to then recognize that. It's the sooner we can see these things before they sit in the mind and grind and grind with rubbing and whatnot, bringing the temperature higher and higher and higher, that we can catch those things very quickly. And the sooner that we can, the easier it is to cool off. Yeah. Which, by the way, and, uh, uh, is always good to point this out. And that is, is that this is actually the definition of the word Nibbana. It means mm -hmm. to yeah. chill, to cool out, uh, um, uh, to, to, to stop barking <laughs> uh, like the dogs. They, yeah. you know, the Nibbana too. Uh, and that uh, this is actually part of our language. We know that this is the case. And yet when the word Nibbana comes into English, some magical put it way up there on the top shelf, you know. Yeah. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about, um, there's actually a book that he, uh, uh, it's a little, little book, a, pa a pamphlet uh, of, I think, a single talk. Uh, and the name of it is Nibbana for Everyone. And here he actually talks about it not only is Nibbana for everyone, but that everyone does have little Nibbana moments. Mm-hmm. Sometimes every day, sometimes people will wait to the weekend. Many so is this yeah. have them on the toilet, sitting on the toilet, and they just relax and everything comes out okay. Yeah, I did a lot of, or I was involved in sports a lot earlier, um, and there's this like concept of the flow state, and it's it's also very magical in sports. Like they're like, I, I like did some reading on it when I was more into sports and like, it was like a somewhat magical thing. Even in the books I would read, like it like randomly comes up when, um, like it, it kind of makes sense though. Cause if you learn more about like this stuff, then you probably wouldn't be doing like the sports stuff or whatever you're in. Um, like, yeah, I will. We can go off in that direction. Other than Nibbana as a magical thing, you were talking about flow state and flow in sports. We can go in that direction a little bit, sure. Okay, 
the flow state in sports is very much like a mind state. And that when there's two, by the way, two different flow states that sports people can get into. Okay. One flow state is similar to the first jhana. And the second flow state is similar to the second jhana. Okay. And that part of the difference between the first kind of flow state and the second kind of flow state is what you would call when the enthusiasm gets to the point where it is, um, how to say it, uh, uh, euphoric. When I when things are just clicking and I've got everything and I'm just pounding, yeah. just pounding and pounding and pounding. The guy, anybody who's not in that state does not stand a chance against a skilled uh, martial artist or whatever who is in that that flow state. Okay. Why? Because the mind is completely focused on what's coming in and also focused on uh, the delight and the energy of being a profound winner. Yeah, you mentioned, I think, in a previous talk about something with the second jhana, where when you come out of it, it's like, oh, wow, and then you can't get back into it, kind of. Like well, I remember that very type beginner, of feeling. Right, the very beginner will be like that. That uh, that uh, the very recognition of that flow state uh, for the beginner will the recognition of the flow state will pull him out, and he'll stay stuck. Wow, remember what's that. that? <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. he'll get hit. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember that in sports, and then like once you actually realize that and you're out of it, like. It's you can't just click back into it because you want it now, right? Now you want it yeah. exactly, and that we're we also don't have the the conditions for it. Okay, so this by using sports, and there's many different kinds of sports that we could use. I would even use Formula One racing because that kind of racing requires someone at their top notch paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. Because yeah. if they stop paying attention to what's going on, they're going to be in the hospital or dead. Mm -hmm. Right? So you got to pay attention to what's going on. Everything depends upon it. But you also uh, can see that in the Formula One race car, with the G-forces, the pulls, the pushes, and all of that actually stimulates the body to go oh, yeah. into that state of euphoria. Yeah. Okay, and that euphoria you can see in the racer when they stop driving like this and start driving like this. Okay, okay. have to watch for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Total attention, total focus into it. Okay. All right. This is actually the kind of state that we're practicing for, but you don't need a baseball glove. You don't need a basketball. You don't need a million-dollar Ferrari. No. <laughs> no. We can, in fact, go into these states simply by literally talking ourselves into them with wholesome thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Thoughts of, thoughts of, wow, this is so good. This is so nice. Yeah. Wow, this is exhilarating. Okay? So we literally can talk ourselves into it, but we have to be free, uh, free from all unwholesome thoughts, all unwholesome states. And this is so powerful that uh, I'm 
kind of making a point of it with you over and over again because I think this is one of the reasons why many students don't get it. I tell them this and I tell them this and I tell yeah. them this and then they they don't do it. Yeah. And so now we got to really get it down to where, you know, the number one task, the only first thing that needs to be done with meditation is to get the hindrances out of the mind. Definitely. First, I feel like in books, it's just like sometimes it's just the introduction it's brought up. But like a lot of readers or Western readers specifically, they don't think they need to read the introduction. So like, mm -hmm. yeah. And so now, and so now they go off into more important things, in the sense that now they're going to give a history lesson or give a literature lesson, and the kids don't even know how to read yet. Yeah, <laughs> those letters look really cool, but I don't know what they mean or daunting <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. This is, so this is the issue. Yeah, uh, uh, and the Buddha is very clear on this. In many, many suttas, including the one that I just mentioned, the number 111, the first thing he says when he's talking about the process that uh, Sariputta went through was quite secluded from unwholesome states. So is this something that Westerners don't really pick up on? Because in one of your talks, you also met, mentioned um, how like the consecutive nature of like the presentation of the on a, the 16 steps of Anapanasati, like Westerners automatically think like it's step by step by step. Is that like a similar case where uh, I, I would, yeah, go yes, ahead. It's almost like that this is so obvious and so clear. It's a duh point. Sure. We're like maybe in a different culture. It'd be like, oh, obvious. Yeah. yeah it would be yeah. so obvious except that, uh, uh, because it's obvious, we don't give it the weight that it deserves, and because it's not given the weight, uh, and that uh, then some meditation technique like paying attention or uh, using a particular word like noting, or like uh, uh, with Goenka they use uh, scanning or uh, something uh, like that, we're giving the student something to do. Yeah. And actually, that would be like, uh, let us say, swimming. Okay. And so we're teaching someone how to swim, and they come in and are ready to jump into the pool and ready to dive and go right into swimming. And they not only have their street clothes on, but it's winter time. Yeah. Okay, and here they go jumping into the pool, fully dressed. Maybe like a dumbbell of two, like a weight vest taped to them, yeah. Right. And it's hard for people to understand that, wait a minute, all those heavy clothes, especially water sogged, are mm -hmm. now going to be a hindrance to learning how to swim. Yeah. That, in fact, you may even have some rocks in your pockets. <laughs> you may have been to the store before you walked in here to take your swimming lesson. And so now you've got all kinds of heavy dudes going on. Yeah. Right? And we don't understand that, no, we've got to uh, skinny down here. We've got to get dressed for the situation. Yes. And so that's a really good analogy right there is with the like sports that. Is, is that you've got to get ready to go uh, play that sport. Yeah. If, you, if sports analogies ever come to you, those probably will click with me pretty quick. Okay. 
there's a lot of them that, in fact, uh, uh, the whole uh, history of Japanese Zen is built within the martial arts. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting history about that. But yes, okay. even the sitting posture, the Zen sitting posture is not a Zen sitting posture at all. It is a military posture. Mm. Military. Is that mm. where they sit on their, like, when they're sitting on their knees? Shins? Um, no, yeah, like, me, they're sitting on their heels. The buttocks are on the heels. The heels are flat out behind them. Okay. And, and facing forward directly frontwards is the knees. Where their legs are, like, folded, right? Or Pardon? No. Where their legs no are, like, folded? No folding legs. Okay. No, the legs are straight. Okay. Here's the reason why that's true is because this military posture is designed from the old days where people did not have furniture and sit on the floor or sit on the ground a lot. And you've got to stand up as fast as you can to draw your sword and whack that guy in half before he whacks you in half. And you cannot come out of a cross-legged posture quick enough. No, he's got at least a second advantage on you if he's sitting in this military posture. Why? Because the first thing you do is with the very, very heavy muscles in the back and also the gut muscles working together as you rise up on your knees. And while you're rising up on your knees, which automatically makes you uh, maybe a foot taller, you've got your left foot actually raised up and, and on the ground so that it's actually all of your weight is on the right knee. Mm -hmm. The second instant is that you're going to be pushing your uh, left leg down with all of its force to throw you right into the air. Yeah, like like a track runner or whatever when they're mm -hmm. getting and ready so to run. And so when right. you land, you land on all both feet. Meanwhile, while you're in the process of standing up on your knees, mm -hmm. your left thumb was on the hilt of the sword with the thumb pushing as hard as you can to throw that sword out of the scabbard and into the air so that you can catch it mid-flight with your right hand so that when you're coming up, you've got it and you can whack like that as soon as you get your posture. We're talking about two, three seconds at the most. Yeah. Quite wow. a surprise unless you're ready for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why the Zen posture is the Zen posture because it's a military posture. It's not designed okay. for comfort. Here comes the Westerners with their Zen bench. What are they trying to do? They're trying to uh, say, wait a minute, sitting on my heels is painful. It's especially painful for the feet. It's also very painful for the knees, depending upon how much flesh and flab there is uh, on the legs. Because if there's a lot of weight uh, on yeah. the back side of the leg, on the inside and, and down below, then when you're sitting directly on your heels, it actually puts a stretch on your knees to pull them apart. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Yeah. And so the Westerners say, well, let's get a Zen bench. And so we're going to sit on that Zen bench, which brings the buttocks about a half an inch or so off of the, of the heels, allowing some uh, comfort uh, for, the, for the knees as well as uh, the heels. But here's the issue about the Zen bench. If you try to get up off of that Zen bench in the military fashion we just talked about, you're probably going to break your own leg with it. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, but that thing yeah. at, at, at your very, very easiest, you got to watch to make sure that when you throw your left leg up, you're catching, you're hitting that bench in such a way as to throw it out of the way. Sure, where you might as well sit cross-legged or in a chair or whatever. I just, right, exactly. <laughs> we already have chairs all over the place. Right, right. because clearly that Zen posture had a particular purpose. It was a military posture. Then, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, uh, the sitting posture that's in the suttas does not specifically say cross-legged. In the various places where this, there's, a, there's a little passage, it's, it's got some changes from sutta to sutta. But it always starts off with the practice is going to the forest, to a hut, to an empty hut, to a pile of straw, to an uh, to uh, under a tree, and sit. Mm-hmm. And always that's translated as cross-legged. But the Pali doesn't have the word cross-legged. It has seat. That's just one of the things that gets set yeah. down and right. The cross-legged is just a Western idea in Western English that's not in the Pali. Yeah. But in Asia, everybody sits on the floor anyway, or at least in South Asia. I don't know what they do in Japan. They No, they sit on the floor there, too. They have their ways. So um, the Western culture, though, has been on furniture. Mm-hmm. That you were taken off the floor when you were a kid. I've got a lot of Thai people who sit on the floor. In fact, the last party we had February a year ago, we haven't had one because of COVID. Um, had about 35 people here. We've got three chairs in the house. Oh, yeah. Where did everybody sit? They sit on the uh, um, uh, uh, the, the mats that we put out. So the Westerners do that. They probably just step all over the food. <laughs> but it's, I think it's part of the culture. Yeah, it's, um, it seems a lot more convenient. You don't need all this furniture. Well, television uh, and the Western are having some influences on Thai taste. There are furniture okay. stores now that they weren't there 50 years ago. But in any case, back yeah. to what we're talking about here is, is that the, the practice of Anapanasati is not actually specified for any particular posture at all. But in historical ways of talking about it, there are four traditional postures. Sitting, lying, walking, and standing. Which means that any of those postures or any variations between them is a good enough posture for mm-hmm. practicing Anapanasati so long as it has some, uh, let us say, freedom from unwholesome states, like pain. A lot yeah. of Western meditators will sit even though their body is in pain, and then they'll write on Reddit about how much their body pains. And all the people congratulate them for sitting how long in pain, right? Yeah. And yet pain, That's how we think, right? right? No pain, no gain. I, well, here's the point. What about gain with no pain? What about the kind of gain that we have the feeling of no pain would be a gain? That's the better gain, right? Yeah. Or the only kind. Exactly. So the whole idea of uh, no pain, no gain means that if you are having trouble lifting five kilograms, if you continue to pump five kilograms, eventually you'll be able to pump five kilograms without any pain. 
Mm -hmm. There you go, no pain. The gain yeah. for pain is no pain. That's the gain. Yeah. Well, if we can put that together, we can figure out, well, wait a minute, that means that I don't have to spend a lot of time in pain in order to get no pain. If I want no pain, I can just do no pain immediately, right? Now yeah. we're getting close to the Buddha because this is exactly what the Buddha teaches, Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Mm -hmm. No pain or pain and no pain. That's what he teaches. Let's, let's have a whole lot of no pain here is our yeah. game for recognizing that we were in pain and we came out of it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, all right. So this sitting posture, when people are sitting in meditation and they have pain in their body, the reason we call it pain, and they immediately call it pain, with a four-letter word, P-A-I-N, I mean, we're using that word. They're not using the word that uh, um, uh, Goanka would use. He uses the word sensation. Mm -hmm. So that's what yeah. we're doing. We're standing for sensation. And so when we use the word pain, we're already uh, indicating that, yes, there is a sensation, and no, I don't like it. Yeah, it's been funny. I've been like thinking this week. It's funny how like when we see things, like we don't associate that with ourselves, but like feelings of touch are so like associated with me. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is part of the practice is, is to recognize that I am not that sensation. I am not that pain. That yeah, pain is just there, just like I am not that unwholesome thought. Well, pain is an unwholesome thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if it's associated with a particular sensation, it's still a hindrance. It's still unwholesome because we don't like it. Mm -hmm. And so Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and many other good teachers would recommend that you need to shift your posture so that you can come to a state where you're not in pain. Yeah. So that you can uh, have a stable place. If you can get stability with your body, then you can sit still and then the mind will get very still. But if you sit still with the body and the body's in pain, that's not sitting still at all. Yeah. No, the mind is turning and turning and turning. What's five minutes? Fifty-seven minutes, three minutes to go, three minutes to go. We can make it, we can make it. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> and so this is the whole idea that we have to be able to have a sharp view to understand what really, uh, what is unwholesome? What is Oh, you're back. There you go. You were just at what really is unwholesome. Yes, what I was saying was is that uh, we have to really understand what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. And the, the way to do that is by spending more and more time in wholesome thoughts and then recognizing that even a random or a junk thought at this point is now unwholesome. A lot of people think that, oh, it's, just, it's an ordinary thought, it's not unwholesome. Well, yeah, the mind is spinning on it, so that's more than you need to do. Okay, yeah. so as you progress in your practice, you get to understand more and more of the normal mind's activities are actually not very wholesome. Yeah, definitely. I've realized that, yeah. And so we'll pay more and more close attention to what is downright wholesome. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, one set of words that I use is the words critical. Yeah, yeah. And I've been repeating that in my head a lot because it's funny the small things that I'll be critical about. Uh-huh. <laughs> like the very insignificant, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So recognize those criticisms that when, when we begin critical of things. <laughs> I'll like uh, laugh out loud at it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, one of the things that you can do at that particular point in time would be um, to find some advantage to it, that everything is basically a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. So why do we focus on the whole, uh, unwholesome in order to make it better when we could focus on the wholesome and be pleased with the progress yeah well so i guess we could talk we could go down so far as to say that almost everyone is a glass half empty kind of fellow and very very few people are actually half full Mm -hmm. that's really what's going on is is that we allow the hindrances of it's not good enough there's more to do and this is all critical thinking we're nurturing thinking is half a glass yeah that's fine yeah, the I was listening to a video of yours earlier today, and the like, um, the whole like we set goals for ourselves to give us like a little hit of like wholesomeness. Um, <laughs> that kind of like clicked with me because you know I've been in an education system and stuff. Um, but if we could just have that all the time, we don't need to set these like arbitrary goals to get that. Right. Exactly. That in fact. Uh, in a way, the doing of that goal, whatever it was, is work. And when we win that point or get that goal or do that thing, then part of the feeling good is just the relief of having finished it. <laughs> it At least I've got it done just... now. <laughs> yeah. And we could have had that relief by not finishing it. And it could have had the relief earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is why um, a lot of the teachings of the Buddha are going in the direction of non-doing, non-going, comfortable, that in fact um, in uh, his execution or the descriptions of kama, the Buddha generally uses four kinds of kama rather than the normal two which is in religion. Religion has, you do good, you get good results. If you do bad, Mm -hmm. you'll get bad results. Yeah. And then you have some, uh, let us say, some quirks about that. Some say you do good, you'll get good results. If you do bad, you'll get forgiveness. And then, like, this is basically what our whole society is built off, right? Right, exactly. Work hard to school, you'll get that PhD, you'll be whatever. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the reality is, is that almost all of our behavior is a mixed bag. It's funny, like logically following everything you talk about is like no action, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, or at least I'm not at a point where I see any feelings um, where like, oh, that's worth following. Like even um thoughts of like teaching the dharma i think dharma i think that will come up at maybe some point like actual but right now it feels like just wanting to do something um like it's all like 
wanting. I think you said that there are some useful things to attach to, but like mm-hmm. there is just a lot of wanting things. Exactly. All right. Um, when you said that, you were mentioning something that I think is quite useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll incorporate it into talking about comma. Mm-hmm. The third kind of comma is the comma that is mixed bag. And almost all comma is a mixed bag. Almost all of it. An example of action of the uh, referee throwing a penalty flag. And half the crowd cheers and half boos, right? So yeah. is that a good call or not? It depends upon opinions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've really been able to relate to that one, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's funny. the next kind of comma, which is the one that's the clincher, the Buddha says it's not a mixed bag. It's neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has neither good nor bad results. In fact, it doesn't have much results at all. Yeah. And then the statement is made, which was, uh, it's just mind-blowing until you really understand what's going on. And that is, this is the comma that, that brings to the end of comma. Mm-hmm. The action that brings action to an end is when we're no longer trying to get something and no longer trying to uh, uh, get some benefit or so. I mean, comma is all like future-minded, right? Always future-minded. And if we stay in the present moment, <laughs> then we're not doing there's anything. No, there's no anything. comma, right? Yeah. Then there's no comma, really. If everything is done in the moment, uh, then that brings about the end of the comma. Uh, many, many examples all over uh, uh, our technology is just absolutely filled with uh, a little bit of action that brings an end to a great big action. And this is the kind of action that we want to take. This is the action that is one's right noble effort. Mm-hmm. Right noble effort actually brings an end to all of that mind spinning, right? So there's a really clear example. Also, uh, the freeway is absolutely choked with high-speed traffic. But the cops know how to bring that to an end. They can just park a couple of cars on that freeway, and all of a sudden, there's no more traffic. Yeah. So we can do things to bring an end to traffic or bring an end uh, to action if we're uh, doing it in the right way. And so doing a little bit of action to bring about a whole lot of the end of a whole lot of action, that happens instantaneously for the practitioner in that moment but if he starts doing that a lot mm-hmm. he begins to see things in a new in a new way an okay, example yeah. that i use because uh, this this is actually a true story uh, but it's very very old i had a, 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 a he was a university professor and so was i and we went out together a lot and one time he took me to a, his friend's house and in the basement, this guy had a train set that was like the best in Detroit. I mean, it was just so immense and so big and, and all of that. Uh, and uh, uh, in the process of talking, he was saying, well, most of it doesn't work anymore. And we became curious. 
And he said, yeah, it, it doesn't work anymore. I used to keep it all up, but I've gotten old and now I don't care. And as the pieces break, I just let them keep breaking. I don't have to go buy a new engine or whatnot and keep this train mm -hmm. just going. Yeah. I'm an old man. I don't, it's even hard to come down the stairs to get into the basement, you know. Okay. So that means that we will eventually give up even our favorite hobbies. Mm -hmm. But if we investigate the actual value of what's the value of having that hobby, we begin to say, wait a minute, I don't really need that hobby anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, that I used to belong to the neighborhood basketball team, but I don't go anymore. I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore. All right. So what we have is, is that the more wisdom that we put to it, the more we recognize that I was doing a whole lot of things thinking that I was going to get a benefit out of it. But now that I see things as they are, I see that I'm not getting a benefit out of it that I thought that I was. So why should I bother anymore? I feel like having the like wider view of things analogy, like like one layer up is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Like that's like a yeah, a quick one that like can click in the mind like, oh. Like, yeah. Yes. So this is what we mean by as our sati grows and as our uh, right view about what is wholesome and unwholesome grows, we will have fewer and fewer things that are wholesome and fewer and more and more things that are unwholesome, which lives us then with less and less to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so we begin to not do so much anymore. This is when we can actually begin to enjoy life. Yeah. Because we, we're not so busy anymore. Now, there is also something along with that that we need to look at, and that is what uh, in Buddhism is referred to as the fetter of restlessness. Most of our doing is because we've got that energy of restlessness to go get something done. So when new students go to a meditation retreat, or sometimes they even just sit down to practice meditation, and that's when that restlessness will come up so that they can see it clearly. Generally, they don't see it at all because they just obey it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like we're so well-trained. Uh, the example would be a well-trained horse only needs to see the shadow of the whip. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so all we see is the shadow of that restlessness, and we spring into action. Yeah. But if we can find a way of getting into a meditation retreat place where they, uh, they let us say, it's a Nazi concentration camp kind of meditation retreat place. There's a lot of them around. They'll take your books and your cell phone and your writing tablet and everything away from you. And there you are with nothing but your sleeping bag and your butt. <laughs> and this is where people begin to understand this restlessness. I got to go someplace. I got to do something. That internal interior, wouldn't it be much better if we could just talk ourselves into being at rest? Why should I be in a hurry to go someplace and do something? The answer to that is because we've gotten into the habit of that. And what got us into the habit of that was getting yelled at when we were kids. Yeah. And wanting to avoid getting yelled at. And so we, we did it in a hurry. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to 
like remind yourself that this is like a friend like this is meant to help me like i evolved to have this to protect me but you know growing up in a society that trains this to yell at me and stuff that's why my friend's a little angry at me or like a little Ex- too much of like a backseat driver or whatever right exactly or, so yeah, yeah. And so um, going along with the idea that we can't be a real backseat driver in our uh, uh, own life, allowing this restlessness to drive the car, we're going to have to pull that restlessness out of the driver's seat and take control. (laughs) Okay. And we can do it within the sense of, of words like down boy. Or, wow, isn't it nice that I don't have to go there and do that? Everything is already okay. And I can take yeah. a deep breath and say, wait a minute. Not only do I have to take the restlessness out of the driver's seat, I don't even have to climb into the driver's seat. We could just sit down <laughs> and not have to go anywhere. And so this idea of uh, this kind of action that actually addresses the um, restlessness directly brings about the end of the activity of the restlessness. Because we can begin to see that this restlessness was only associated with unwholesome thoughts. And when I start having wholesome thoughts, the restlessness will subside. I can take a few deep breaths and let that restlessness, which almost always shows up as a body sensation once we start paying attention to the body. I noticed that. It's funny how much like my chest or like kind of my lungs closing up Um, Uh and yeah 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 so we have these unpleasant sensations and it's so much similar to pain like where like you can observe it it. that's what's similar yeah we don't like it but we're not paying attention to it we're trying to escape it's like we don't pay when when we are running uh away from someone who is chasing us we don't pay much attention to that guy who's chasing us no and it's like almost just as soon as you hear a footstep, like you said, like the shadow of the whip, you start like doing whatever the restlessness t- tells you to do. Mm-hmm. And so we don't notice it. So this is the value then of sitting down uh, with the intention of having nothing to do, knowing that if any unwholesome thoughts arise, they're going to bring these kinds of sensations and feelings up they always have. This is what I mean by we've been able to talk ourselves into feeling bad. We've been talking ourselves into feeling restless by giving ourselves jobs to do and say, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. You got to do your homework. Yeah. I will say this. The story is Sunday evening. When I was in, uh, uh, let us say, as as a teacher, excuse me, as a student of psychotherapy, Therapy being in, in training as a psychotherapist was the setting about this time when I began to notice that I would get uptight, anxious on Sunday evening. Every Sunday evening, there's no big problem. I, I go to work tomorrow, but I'm ready to go. There's nothing here. But I will always have an anxiety on Sunday evening. So I did some reflection and recognized that there was a time in high school where I had a three-way battle on Sundays. The three-way battle was, number one, on television, I wanted to watch the Smothers Brothers. Number two, Mommy want me to go to church. 
And number three, I have procrastinated and I haven't done my homework. Yeah, that's the one that okay, <laughs> went so right I've here got, Sunday night. Yeah. Right. So I've got an emotional roller coaster Sunday night, one Sunday night after another, after another. And I built myself into that habit. And it took me years later to recognize that that habit was still there, even though none of the circumstances were there that caused that sensation. And I didn't even have any thoughts about it. But come Sunday night rolling around, and here I am all uptight, and I didn't know why. Yeah. I didn't have any Anapanasati then. If I'd had Anapanasati there, it wouldn't have mattered. I said, oh, I'm uptight on Sunday. Never mind. Start again. Let's take a deep breath, and we're okay. But I did wind up figure out it was because of what was happening when I was in school as a kid, that I get every year, year after year, 52 times a year, I get myself all balled up on Sunday night. Yeah, same here. So, so we do this. This is that we do. Uh, uh, restlessness, uh, agitation, worry. It's uh, funny. One ahead. of the realizations I've had is like, it's funny how much we criticize procrastinating, and like, it's we think we're like malformed or broken for procrastinating, but we don't like look a little inner. Like, why don't we want to actually do this thing? Maybe that's not like like the key or whatever I am i so do you understand that say, yeah. yes i would go so far as to say anapanasati is the skill and the art of properly correctly procrastinating <laughs> yeah i'd agree there yeah because we procrastinate wrongly in other words we set a goal we and do. then we say i don't want to do it and then we say, you got to do it. I don't want to do it. But you got to do it. I don't want to do it. That's the way most people uh, congratulate, uh, uh, practice procrastination. <laughs> because it's got all that critical thinking in there. You got to do it. This should be done. It's a supposed to. It's part of that uh, uh, programming. <laughs> or the old tapes. There's many different words that we use. Um, uh, Eric Byrne called it... Um, um, Parent ego state, critical mind, critical thinking. The Buddha called it by two names. One was Silabhata Paramasa, which means attachments to rites, rules, and rituals. The other word is Sankara, all of the old collection of junk, including mm -hmm. all of the rites, rules, rituals, and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. And so we, we, we build this stuff up, and then we use it conversationally, uh, then, in fact, you could say that the words that were there are is the words that are put to the agitation itself or the restlessness itself. The restlessness itself is you got to go do this. You got to go do that. This needs to be done. Why don't you get that done? Um, task to do. And so um, this is also the source of, of worry is uncompleted business. And the procrastination is you've got to do the business. And so the, uh, the procrastinator then, uh, in the interior of the human being, the procrastinator is the child who doesn't want to do what he's told to do. Yeah. yeah. But within Anapanasati, the more noble way of looking at it, well, actually, the real villain is the one who's going around issuing marching orders. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's the boss inside the head. That's the that's the problem telling us to go do stuff. <laughs> it is. It is. That we don't want to do naturally. That the natural <laughs> tendency is for us to just relax and be I mean, that's just that's just our history. You know, a really funny thing that I've been able to observe is um, you mentioned with like parents do it to humans or people do it to humans and they do it to pets as well. Mm-hmm. Like thinking they can train them to act like humans. Um, uh-huh. Like we got a new dog in the family and it's just funny to see the interactions with that um, where he's in his kennel and it's like so upsetting or like some someone would will get so frustrated that he's barking in his kennel um and then like maybe like he wasn't supposed to be in his kennel or maybe like it's it's just funny aren't kennels natural i mean archaeologists have been digging up hundreds of billions of million year old kennels haven't they (laughs) really they really have And that dog knows he belongs in a kennel, right? (laughs) Or he's at the perfect age to start breeding. He doesn't want to be in a kennel. (laughs) Yeah, that's part of the compassion that I've got for dogs. I've had dogs um, back and forth and on and off for a while. We've got a couple of them here. No collars, no fences. Sometimes we close the door, but that's about all. It's funny. This might be a fun segue. Um, I, I've also have thoughts like dogs are animals are like very feelings chasing, similar to like humans that haven't been exposed to anapatisati and such. Um, what how do you what's like the proper way to deal with people when they are worrying like we were talking about or they're thinking about the future or talking about themselves procrastinating? Um, how do you engage with that? Okay, here we are having a class in algebra, and you're asking me about calculus. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's what I, that that was my thought. That All was right. like because you've and talked here, about. Let us say it this way: How can you learn to manage your restlessness? That's the first job. Yeah. And if you can learn how to do that, then you'll know how to handle other people's restlessness well. Yep. Okay. Uh, and that, um, always the way to handle other people is lighthearted mm-hmm. as opposed to heavy, that this is what meta is all about is learning how to live the world, live in, live with the world without having all of the feelings that the people in the world have yeah. that your job is, is first off is to get yourself into a marvelous state. And then number two, share that marvelous state with others. That makes sense. But it's a one-two kind of punch. This is why it's important right from the very beginning to practice seclusion. To practice seclusion from the world so that you can be free from the unwholesome states of the world. And then we practice seclusion from the world we brought into the meditation hall with us by removing unwholesome thoughts. And then you don't even probably need to worry about that issue because you have the skills already, right? The only reason I think about it is because I'm not secluded, right? So, like, where someone who's secluded wouldn't even have those things to think about, likely. Well, actually, if they surround themselves, one who is free from agitation and knows he's free from agitation and enjoys finally being free from agitation. 
He's not blind to the agitation of others around him. He's not what? He's not blind to the agitation of others around him. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. He's not, he's not blind at all. Um, and that's that's basically what you're you're talking about. So uh, in the sense of it takes one to know one. That's also true um, in the sense that once you have been in a state of agitation, you know what it's like. You can see others in it even when you're not. So even normal people who are sometimes in the state of agitation and sometimes are not can see other people when they really are in a state of agitation and worry about something. Okay. Generally, when people are agitated and worried about something, that's what they want to do. And so if you go around screaming Anapanasati in their ear, they probably won't like it very much because they're already doing what you... But you can ask them, you can say, hey, do you really enjoy worrying like that? And start to get them to notice and look. So that would be the way, just like we started with you, you got to take a look at what's going on. When people see that what they're doing is suffering, then yeah. they don't want to do it so much. Like show them the dangers instead of telling them what to do. Oh, I wouldn't say showing them the dangers. Or telling, just no, warning? No, maybe, no. Maybe, we, oh. maybe we can help them to find the dangers. That's, that's the hard part. Okay. okay. Like pointing in a little direction and then... Yeah, yeah, you can point them in the right direction, but uh, even that might find resistance. Sure, yeah, that's maybe a good you, clarification. Maybe you just start asking them, are you in the right, going in the right direction? And then they can even start to think. If, if you automatically assume they're going in the wrong direction and you've got to point them in the right direction, that means that you're assuming that they're doing something wrong. Yeah, I've heard this in psychology, like the pre-competitive, competitive, and there's like the steps there, yeah. Right. That this is what we all have to do is, is that there's level of levels of insight. And that the real insight is uh, a lot of people are confused about that, too, uh, in the sense they think that uh, um, Buddhist meditation or Anapanasati or whatever name that they talk about, it has to do with insight or Vipassana into the nature of the self. This is absolutely incorrect. Absolutely wrong, misguided, and will wind up in even more dukkha. Mm. Why do I say that? Is because the real thing that they need to take notice of and understand well is not the nature of self, it's the nature of dukkha. Because that's what they need to avoid. Yeah. And when they, and when they understand the nature of dukkha, they'll begin to see that oh, one of the things that creates and causes the dukkha is ignorance about the self, and that's how they okay. figure it out for themselves. But if they start off saying that it's that makes sense. Itself, they're going to miss the whole point. The whole point is dukkha, dukkha, naroda, not self or no self. A lot yeah. of Buddhists are confused about self and no self, and it's not an issue. The only issue that was ever there about it was the fact that people would say, oh, well, I am a permanent entity. I've been here all along, and I will be here forever. Eternal I am, the soul. Mm -hmm. Which means that if it's eternal and perfect already and unchanging, then I'm not going to bother to do things like Anapanasati. I mean, I'm already good. 
I'm already whole. And besides that, I can't change because I'm already perfected. But I do have a destiny that I've got to live out. And poor me and all my poor shit because of all of this past uh, and future destiny that I am doomed to live out because I'm a permanent self. Yeah. Okay. That's the danger of the self. But when we recognize, oh, no, the self is not that big a deal. It can change. You are not your personality. You are not your feelings. You are not your thoughts. You are not your uh, whatever you are. You're not any of those things. And so those things can change without whatever you is that's changing. Yeah, it feels like this self, at least at first, isn't something you want to focus on. It reminds me of like violence and no violence where like pushing away from violent to be nonviolent isn't that much better than being violent, like where you just kind of need to forget about it and be present. Um, exactly. Where like pushing away from the self that's still engaging with those ideas and such. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Nonviolence is often a defense of a reaction to and sometimes even offensive action against violence. <laughs> yeah. But we're talking about from the other direction. If this is violence, we don't set up a wall against nonviolence. We just merely put some distance. Yeah. 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 We can throw that out. We don't need that. Okay. So this is a way that we begin to practice recognizing that the real um, Vipassana, the real thing to see is dukkha. Because what we're really going to find out in the process is who little of me, I'm not that important anyway. That every time the me comes in trying to make itself important, that's when suffering is created. Yeah, yeah. But when, uh, like the itch, just an itch. An itch is just an itch until it becomes my itch, and then I don't like it. So when it's just an itch, and it's not my itch, it's not yeah, me for sure. itching. <laughs> and so this is what we want to do is we want to put distance from our uh, between us and ourselves if, if uh, we think about it like that uh, rather than trying to uh, get deep insight into the nature of the self the only d nature that we need the deep insight into is just that the, the self is not worth paying much attention to yeah you don't have an immortal soul that needs to be um, uh protected from or forgiven by God. I like to think of the soul as much more like a football. That's the only thing that's left. And when the football gets to heaven, God's going to play football with it. He's either going to kick you into heaven or kick you into hell. <laughs> his choice, his game. All we have to do uh, to protect ourselves against that danger is <laughs> don't be a football. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a football. Yeah. Don't be a football. <laughs> <laughs> so football's out. <laughs> yeah. And then we don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. So these are the actions then that lead to the end of action. Because being a football and getting kicked out of heaven and into hell and all of that sounds like a whole lot of work. Yeah. But what? Me worry. I'm not a football and throw it out and then nothing to it. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that because you probably uh, have heard that many people spend a whole lot, millions of mind moments worrying about hell or are afraid and spend yeah. a lot of time in fear for possible dangers that could happen way off into the future. 
And so people make themselves miserable because they think they're permanent. Yeah, where it's like the ultimate, like you don't even have to breathe anymore. Like you can well, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually what is meant by Mahaparinibbana. The Mahaparinibbana is the final exhaustion, it's the final letting go, the final cooling off. That about the best you could do now is cool off to a, a good 98.6 if you're using Fahrenheit. Yeah. But when you're dead, man, you can really cool off then. <laughs> That's the really big cooling off is when we're dead. And guess what? Even then, we don't even have to breathe. Yeah. We don't have to think. We don't have to feel. There's just absolutely nothing. Yeah. Now there really is no place to go. And so they say rest in peace and things like that. Yeah. So we can practice resting in peace now. We can get ready for it. Yeah. So that's basically how we're practicing is, is that uh, we don't have to be restless and busy and uptight and having work to do when we're already okay. Just like million years ago, the hunters and gatherers of the time, the gatherers would gather one or two hours a day. They could go out and fix something and get enough for the day for the hunters too. And the hunters are out all morning, but they've got a big kill. And now they're mm -hmm. dragging that carcass, or maybe the carcass is so big they invite the whole family just to move over to the carcass, and there they prop themselves, and they live for a week or two until the carcass starts to stink because they can't eat it all. Yeah. And that's life, right? <laughs> they don't have to worry, yeah. Work one day a week, or uh, if you're on the daily team, then you only work for an hour a day or two. That's all yeah. there is. And this, and this is humanity up until modern times. Mm-hmm. You know what the, what's the change? Some people figured out how to exploit others through feelings. <laughs> and so they tell them things to make them feel bad. I'm curious, one thought I had um, is um, how, how much would like language have to do with all this? Because like, I don't know, it's funny to me because a lot of the thoughts in our head, like it's funny to imagine that like a lot of this suffering and stuff is communicated through like us yelling at ourselves through our head. And I feel like before language, I'm not sure like if we'd be able to have these rational thought processes or. Dogs think. Yeah. They plot. They remember. They bury bones and weeks later go and get them back up. Don't think that your humans are all of that special. Yeah. Yeah. If we, are, if we are special, the difference is, is that the dog can only remember one or at best two or three holes that he's put bones in. Humans, we can remember dozens and hundreds of holes we put bones in. Yeah. We dig them up on our, in our mind and... <laughs> yeah. The language probably just gets too much attention. Right. That's right. what we it's use. Yeah. Dogs have a language. It's, it's a very complicated language. If you are around dogs, listen to the differences in the way that they bark to recognize that they're barking different, not just because he's in the mood to bark this way and in the uh, mood to bark that way, but they're actually communicating. So when the dogs are howling, that's a different sound and it's got a different point and a different purpose and it's part of the communication. Yeah. 
Just because we don't understand it, yeah. And when they're moaning, uh, or when they bark, like for instance, when uh, when Lucky wants out of the house, she'll go bark. That's all she does. And then a couple of minutes later, she'll say bark, and that's her noise to decide to let me out. It's funny. Open the door. Cam's fond of closing the door, especially when the other, when their dogs are in season and whatnot. So. Um, but, uh, there's also the woo, 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 woo sound, which mm-hmm. is completely different from the, uh, right now they're all looking at me <laughs> when I do that one. <laughs> and so you can see that, yeah, dogs got their whole language. They've got an entire language that they have. They have body language, they have uh, growling language, they yeah, have they all kinds of different languages. And so don't think that humans are all of that special. We just, just got a big one we don't perceive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just got a bigger vocabulary, but uh, and we can we can remember and put things together the way that the dogs can't. Another one is is that we can pick up and carry things. The dog, the only thing way that they can pick up and carry things is by putting it in his mouth, which greatly limits him where humans have invented pockets and clothing and all kinds of stuff so that we can carry things around, right? But then that materialism becomes um, uh, an instinct and we go around gathering things thinking that this will help uh, uh, aid my security. And we wind up collecting a bunch of junk that then has to be maintained and kept or lost, and when we lose it, then we remember, oh, I lost it, and then we feel bad. Yeah, just a whole lot of suffering. Where, like, right. maybe like a flint and steel to start a fire so you don't freeze to death what would be beneficial, but mm-hmm. past, like, some of the basic things like that. So some people will say, because we've talked a lot about that the past is dangerous because there's all kinds of stuff there, and some will say, well, what if I remember things that I like or that was pleasant? And I'll say, yeah, I remember I had a BMW. I had an R69S. And I lost that thing. And let's see, what was it? 1979 is when I I lost that motorbike. Hmm. And every time I think about it, I want it again. I lost my bike. Now, what kind of good memory is that? (laughs) That's not very great. Right, right. So it's funny, I've realized with dreams too, they're always hindrance. You mentioned that now that like, I don't know, just whenever I wake up, it's never like happiness, but people always love to talk about them so much. Mm-hmm. Right. And almost all the dreams are uh, foreboding, mm-hmm. trying to predict the future. Something bad's going to happen or whatever yeah. like that. Well, yeah, everything that does happen, almost always bad happens in the future or in the past. Very rarely is this present moment bad and dangerous yeah that's true the only time that right now is bad or dangerous is when we have bad and dangerous thoughts in the mind right now but when we throw those out then right now is always really good mm-hmm. because what then the only time that the dangerous is really bad or the past is really dangerous and really bad is when we're thinking about it now the yeah. only time the future is ever dangerous is when we're thinking about it right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like when we're there, it's not going to be bad. It's just that connection probably, between the two. We make well, it. we can work ourselves up to where it's really going to be bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we talked ourselves true. into it. Exactly. 
And so this, uh, this talk that we've had today, we can talk about it in the sense of learning with our wisdom eye, through our discernment, through our investigation, to figure out more and more and more what's wholesome mm-hmm. and what's unwholesome. Because you've already got the, the, the main key. The main key is, all right, if it's unwholesome, out it goes. And we know how to throw it out. Now we have to have the discernment of figuring out what's really wholesome. How good can I feel? Okay, yeah. Where we've like drawn a line, like stay away from that. Yeah, let's stay away from that. Let's let's walk in this other direction here. Let's go off into the really wholesome. How good can I feel? Yeah. Wow, this feels really good. This feels nice. Isn't it nice that I don't have any place to go and nothing to do, no work to do, and everything is okay. Everything is fine. And when we say those kind of words, we begin to feel that way. Yeah. And we can literally talk ourselves into feeling really good. And when we begin to feel really good like that, now we're getting all the jhana factors together. Mm-hmm. Now we've got the jhana factors together, which we'll talk about later next time. But this is how we go about it. Always that first point is we have to remove the hindrances from the mind. Whatever is unwholesome has to be thrown out. Any thoughts of past or future. Things about the Dhamma, in fact. If you start thinking about the past, instead of thinking about it in the sense of the past and thinking about it like that, you can see it in the sense of the Dhamma. Or, wow, I don't need to go there. Or, wow, that's Dukkha. Or, wow, I really messed that one up, but that's not who I am now. I'm different now. Yeah, okay? yeah. And so we can always bring the Dhamma into it, and that will uh, even make the, uh, the unwholesome wholesome. That's how powerful, that's why it's noble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so uh, we can also talk more about that too, is, is the fact that the Dhamma is generally wholesome. So, so when about Dhamma, it's, Dhamma. it's not the thinking about the past with the Dhamma. It's like when you push it away and then reflect on the Dhamma? Or... Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, yeah. That's more correct. Correct. In other words, we're, we're, we're putting that past in the past rather than reliving the past. We point to it as, that's not me living that. Now. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just a memory. Yeah. Okay. It's just a memory, and it's just done. Where if we're able to put it in that perspective, it's not unwholesome anymore. Not unwholesome anymore, exactly. Okay. Because there's not that me or whatever there, right? So, now we have a little bit more to look at for this one major point of, let's have wholesome thoughts, let's get those doggies rolling, let's get one wholesome thought after another. And this is how we build into first jhana. That's the only way. We can't note our way into it. we got to clean the mind out. That's what we got to do. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any extra questions, Parker? Um, I have a few I'll throw at you. So um, I'm curious. There's a lot of emphasis, I don't know, just Western culture and even um, I think I, it was in TMI I read. Um, like there's the focus on the nose, but also like breathing through the nose. Is there 
And then there's also like the negative connotation of mouth breathers. Is there anything um, like that the Buddha actually said about breathing through the mouth? Actually, uh, the Buddha did not say anything about it at all. The Buddha okay. did say in several places, including in the Anapanasati Sutta, to experience the whole body. While the body is breathing in and while the body is breathing out, you experience the body. He did not say the word nose. The word nose actually is an English language word. But the word uh, nose comes out of the Pali out of uh, about 1500 years ago, out of the Vasudhimaga. But even in the Vasudhimaga, it's, the Pali is not nose, it's the word cave or cavity. Okay. Now, where is the cave or the cavity? Is the cave and the cavity the nose? Is it the mouth? Is it the throat? Okay. Is it the actual cave and cavity of the chest? So yeah. I don't know where this idea of the nose tip came from, but there is the quality of guarding it. In fact, there is uh, the story about a, a, a village that has a wall around it and that the guard used before the wall was built, he was all over town. But now that the, uh, the city has built a gate and a wall around the town, and the description is it is, is that it is so secure that not even a cat could get through that wall without going through the gate. Okay, and now the gatekeeper, the guard, is going to stand at the gate. He doesn't have to be all over town. Okay, so that's the analogy. Okay, so what is the gate now? Is the gate the nose, or is it the mouth, or is it just the head, or is it whatever way we're breathing? Because we really don't have that analogy, and we do know that the word nose is not the correct translation for the actual poly word, which is actually cave or cavity. Mm -hmm. All right, but let's look at it in practical terms now. If, in fact, our uh, whole intention is to wake up, then it seems that closing down is not the way of waking up, frightening up, getting all of the awareness, but um, experiencing the whole body is waking up the whole body. And only paying attention to the breath at the nose tip is very much like closing things down. Now, mm -hmm. there is some wholesome value for that once the mind has already reached first jhana. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would go much further than that, not that he has reached it one time and now it's time to go for the second, but rather that he has become skilled so that he can pop into first jhana any time that he wants to just by thinking about it. And that he can sustain it for long periods of time. In other words, he becomes completely skilled in first jhana. When one is completely skilled in first jhana, the noting that needs to be done will all be noting of wholesome things, including all of the jhana factors. To note that the mind is sharp, to note that we can apply it and sustain it, to note that the mind is free from hindrances, to note uh, the, the joy 
the security, the comfortableness, the satisfaction, and at this level to also begin to notice the enthusiasm and the euphoria. Mm -hmm. Okay. Once we have those ingredients to where the first jhana is really firmly established, then we can begin to put gaps in these wholesome thoughts. It's in that gapping process that we begin to stop. This is where guarding the breath at the gate That's is a better thing to do. So it's an advanced technique. Once you have solid 100% good control over first jhana, now we're going to practice the skill of leaving first jhana by going into the second jhana. And that's where nose tip can become some value. Sure. And you want to make sure there's like no Trojan horse in the castle before you close the gate. Yes, exactly. That's a good point. Exactly. Uh, so that should be the answer for right now to the issue about the nose tip. That no, so, we're going to practice Anapanasati, and Anapanasati is designed specifically. You can see the language. It's designed specifically around taking someone into first jhana so that they can do all that they need to do there. Part of my question would was, and I think you partly provided an answer to this indirectly, but like, how like should one breathe? Is there any worthy way to think about that because i don't know with sports and stuff there's like somewhat of stress about that like if i should forget about it because like it's someone once told me that it's very important to breathe through the nose um and not in through the mouth let us say it this way i'll i'll cover that first Breathing in through the nose, if the nose is not clogged and has free air passage, then there is a lot of uh, hair and a lot of other things in there, bacilia uh, starting up in the nose and what they call sinuses and whatever, and all of that is designed to purify the air. So when you're breathing in, you want to actually purify some of the air. That makes sense, yeah. Okay, but when you're breathing out, Getting it out is more important than uh, um, filtering it. But you when you're out, breathing out faster. by the nose, you can also throw some of that stuff out. Just oh, like yeah. just yeah, doing a solid, strong out breath will throw a whole lot of stuff out. Okay, yeah. so this is a way that we're uh, looking at it from, from a strictly practical point of view is uh, that. Now, we can go to the point of saying that in sports, breathing is absolutely essential. The better someone gets in sports, the more important breathing is. An example of somebody who is going to French bass 200 kilos, and we're talking about top quality now at 200 kilos, that's 440 pounds. You're going to have to do the breathing a lot correctly first, so that when you do that jerk, you're you're holding the breath and as you're holding you let that out breath is when you drop the bell mm -hmm. okay snipers he has to breathe out and hold his breath when he squeezes off the shot though because that will help stabilize the rifle there is I, I mean we can go on and on and on about breathing i've yeah. actually given give breath instructions to karate classes before hmm Okay. Interesting. That 
that in some cases, actual punches have to do with in-breath and out-breath. There are uh, old videos that I have seen about uh, um, basically what it is. It's a power-building technique for the, for the arms, and you put all of the pressure that you can to get the arms really strong, and then you're with the breathing of <sighs> on the out-breath, and then on the in-breath, and then on the out-breath. Okay. Okay, so that, yeah. that out-breath, that's when that punch goes with that heavy out-breath. You let it all out. You just, I mean, you're, if, you, if you can't hit him with your fist, at least knock him down with your breath. Sure. <sighs> Big, strong, heavy out-breath. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That yeah. has to be done with the mouth. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you want as much air coming out as you can possibly get out, and you want that all the cave open to throw yeah. that air out. Yeah. Okay. So this is another way of looking at it is, is that we're thinking about things only from practical terms, not shoulds or ideals or what's the best way of doing it right there. We're just looking at actual practicalities. Yeah, that framing is helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's your nose or your mouth that you're breathing with is not so important. What's important is, is that you're controlling the breath as opposed to just letting the breath be on its own. That makes sense. That's what's important. That's the thing that comes in. And this is exactly what we're doing with the breath, is exactly what we're doing with the hindrances of the mind. That noting the hindrances is just passive. Just noting the breath is just passive. No skin in the game. Yeah. We're practicing with, with right effort. The effort is put some skin in this game. Yeah. What is the skin? You've got to throw those hindrances out, and you've got to take the breathing and make it uh, controlled, to control it long and deep. That makes sense. And then out long and deep so that you can get really relaxed. You use the breathing to actually help relax the body. Any more questions? Mm. No. Nope. All right. Well, let's let's practice this what we've got now, and we'll see you again soon. This has been a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed our talk. Yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. Okay. Well, we'll see you. Yeah. Take care.